Welcome to Into Theology. Ian, Claire, and I are continuing our study of Augustine's Confessions, and we're in Book 12, where Augustine seems to, he does a lot, but he's trying to pursue an understanding of what Genesis 1, and the creation of all things, means. Um, there's a lot here. I don't even want to try to summarize it, so why don't you just read where he wanted to read? <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots lots going on, you know, part of these these books that come after, you know, his kind of like narrative of his own uh, life story. Now you've got these ones where you're dealing with memory, time, and now creation, and they all kind of like fit together. And it's like, he's like going deep into his ability to like understand and remember these sorts of things of his life. And then how does that actually work in relation to God's timelessness that we could actually know things. And now he's getting into like creation stuff where you know, the book of confessions itself begins with, <clears throat> you know, the heart is restless and needs to find its rest in God. And so now he's kind of like driving us very in a kind of deeply philosophical way to understand like what exactly is that rest? It happens, you know, through the creation, um, but God's creating these kind of realities, uh, both heavenly and eternal or and earthly um, that uh, that we're called to participate in. So book 12 is starting to, starting to lead into that. That'll get kind of more filled out in book 13. Um, so I wanted to read on 12, 12, 15. Um, so in the Loeb edition, it's page 275 or 279. And, uh, and it's here where he's kind of like, Augustine's going to like explain how God is like framing these various creative, created realities. Um, so uh, book 12, number 12, number 15. Uh, in the light of these reflections, how much you give me, oh my God, how much you encourage me to knock and open when I do so, I find that there are two things that stand apart from time, uh, although neither is co-eternal with you. The one has been structured in such a way that it can enjoy your eternity and changelessness uh, without any interruption of its contemplation, never changing at any moment, although it is changeable, it has never changed. The other was so lacking in structure of any kind that it had no capacity for changing from one shape to another, either by movement or remaining still, which would make it subject to time. But you did not leave the latter in its unstructured state. Uh, for before each day existed, in the beginning, you made heaven and earth, these two objects that I have mentioned. But the earth was invisible and unorganized, and there was darkness over the abyss. These words introduce the concept of lack of structure in such a way that they incorporate bit by bit any people who cannot conceive of any total absence of shape without ending up at nothingness. From this, the second heaven and the visible structured earth came into being and water and its beauty and whatever is recorded uh, next as being made within the passing of days in the making of this world. Then the nature of these things is such that they are subject to the progression of time according to the changes of movement and shape that have been appointed to them. So he's saying God's created this reality. There's this one sort of sphere that he's going to call the heaven of heavens um, that is not in and of itself unchanging or immutable, but it doesn't change because of its relation to God and its participation in God. This is like the realm of angels and intellect and things like that. But then God also creates a heaven and earth here that is visible through the creation account that Moses is going to give to us in um, in Genesis chapter, the very opening verses, really, of Genesis chapter one, the formlessness, the void, God now giving structure and shape to these sorts of things. So he's he's like articulating this whole this whole framing of reality um, that is going to be super influential on somebody like, you know, Dionysius the Areopagite, and like the medieval period, Thomas Aquinas. Dionysius died in like 
90 AD. Yeah, that's right. It must be what are you talking about? <laughs> you, yeah, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, I think it's probably worth noting that he's reading Genesis 1, so may, it might be worth just reminding people a couple, couple of those verses that he's looking at because what you just read, he's... It's a it's a contemplation, it's a reflection that comes after a long meditation of scripture. So the really basic idea is in verse one of Genesis, you read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So everything seems to be created, and yet we know according to verse two, the earth was without form and void. That's what he's getting. It's, it's shapeless. And darkness is over the face of the deep, the abyss in Augustine's language. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which is where the abyss is. So there's something that's happening here. There's there's no shape. There's no light. So there's nothing in the visible spectrum. And there's nothing that you could actually see that would make sense. It's just something. Yeah. And yet, when you start reading, for example, in verse 2, God begins to put, uh, shape this matter into something else. And, what, and he shapes, at one point, something what we call the firmament, or an expanse. And then he names it in verse 6. Sorry, in verse um, verse eight, he names this expanse heaven. So Augustine says, how could God name something he makes on day two in verse eight, heaven, when in verse one, right. God already made the heavens? So already in the first page of this chapter, his recourse is to read scripture according to scripture. So he cites Psalm 115. And Psalm 115 is an interesting psalm because it actually meditates on genesis 1 it says in verse 3 that god is in the heavens okay and then it says that god in verse 15 made heaven and earth but then in verse 16 it says that god actually lives in the heaven of heavens right. the highest heaven you might say so even in scripture you have this idea that the heaven like when we are on, on earth and we look up the firmament which we would probably just call the sky is heaven and yet there is still a heaven of heavens where God is because we don't see that like the visible spec, like it, it's invisible to our eyes. And so Augustine also cites Colossians 1 in which Paul says that Christ or God through Christ made everything visible and invisible. And those invisible things are like thrones, principalities, dominions, angels, and so on. Well, God made those. He has to make those. They're in Genesis 1 as well. They're just not mentioned explicitly. But Augustine thinks in verse one, they, they are implied to be the first heavens created. Yeah. And then verse six is the visible heavens that we see that was initially unformed and then gets formed in, in verse six, seven, and eight. And we call that the firmament, the thing that's above us when we're on earth. Yeah. Does that, was yeah, that clear no, enough? I, okay. I think that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, he's, <clears throat> um, you know, he's writing with like a bunch of different contexts in the back of his head too, right? So he's he's got the Manichaean issue in the background that he's wrestled with throughout the confessions, right? That God, God is like a got a physical being, he's not the ultimate creator of everything, that matter is evil, and then the, this material universe has kind of always existed. Uh, he's also probably got in mind Plato's Timaeus, right? Where universe is eternal, but then the demiurge kind of takes that kind of eternal matter and then forms it into something. And Augustine here is kind of like taking, I think, like a, a, a swipe at that. Um, he's got a doctrine of creation out of nothing. So God creates all of this. It might be worth just quickly pausing. He, he frequently says that God created de nihilo. So not yeah. ex nihilo, but it's the same meaning. It's just different right. uh, preposition. 
He says at least two or three times, probably more that I noticed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, he, uh, he, he gets into it with the whole stuff on time that we looked at, right. God doesn't create by time. Like it was, he, he doesn't, he, well, he creates time and then uses time uh, after, after its creation to, to do other uh, creative acts. And, um, and so uh, he, but he doesn't believe that the universe is like made up of like a formless matter. So God has to kind of create form first so you get the language of form all over the place. Um, and, um, and so then, uh, you know, then the, the language of darkness is like a kind of an absence of light sort of uh, thing where you, it, it's, it's like, um, it's like an abyss of, like the language is an abyss of chaos in a, in a sense. And so he's taking that, which is chaotic now that has been created and now he's fashioning it. So it's similar in the sense to the Timaeus where there's, you know, God's fashioning something, but that, 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 which he is fascinate, fascinate, fashioning, fashioning out of, um, is not an, an eternal matter or something like that. Like you would see in platonic views, but it's something that he created out of nothing and then forms. Uh, uh, form <clears throat> can I mention two pieces of context that fill out what you're saying a little bit? Yeah. So Augustine will also argue, look, the light comes and the shape comes. Um, these things become are representative of being closer to God. And unshaped and dark is farther away from God. You kind of already see this. That's why it becomes very good on day six once it's all done. This is the same logic in Leviticus that what's holy or pure is is life-giving. What's unholy or impure is death-giving. And if you touch dead things, you go outside the camp, right? If you touch things that are life-giving, uh, you, you come closer to God. Second context is like, Augustine's not saying anything unique. Like there's a there's a genre of writing in the early church called the um hex is it hexmeri hexameron hexameron uh, that Basil uh, and Gregory of Nyssa. Well, Greatness I don't think writes his own, but he has a whole thing on creation. Yeah. Um, it's it's really common, and this I what there are like what Augustine's arguing is not weird, and uh, actually he's right. <laughs> what the text says. Yeah. It's just sometimes where. We almost like tame the text to the point that it just it fits all of our sensibilities and ways of talking. Uh, but it's obvious. I mean, Paul's like, look, there is an invisible and visible created order mm-hmm. and Christ, God, through Christ, the word, let there be light. Also said, let there be angels, let there be thrones, dominions and powers. That's right there as well. Just yeah. because they're not delineated in days one to six doesn't mean they're not created as well, because other scripture says that's true. It's just. Augustine's trying to meditate on what's actually going on in Genesis one. Yeah. Yeah. They ha- like, you have to like, how do you account for it? Right. Like what he's doing is he's asking all the obvious questions. It's like, we read Genesis one as just the creation of the heaven and the earth in terms of sky and land uh, where we live. But like, I mean, if God, if that's the moment where everything starts with that first, let there be well, and angels in the angelic realm is created as well. It's not physically created, but it's, they're created intellectual substances soulish kind of things um and so where do we find those creation of those things we have to we, they have to be somewhere in the opening verses of genesis chapter one right he talks about this in 12 uh what is this um 12 11 12 um where he he talks about how this this kind of like vaulted sort of heaven of heavens it's uh it, it 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 is this sort of place where the angels kind of are i don't think he uses exactly the language angels but it's kind of i think this is what he's getting at he says yes indeed your voice has sounded strongly to my inward ear saying that not even that created domain of yours uh, of which you are the sole delight is co-eternal with you 
Um, so uh, with unswerving purity, it drinks of you. So it's like participation language and nowhere vaunts itself, nowhere. Um, you are always present to it and it cleaves to you with utter devotion, having nothing in the future to await and not consigning what it remembers to the past. It is always untouched by change and never diverges, diverges into any space of time. Oh, bless it. Oh, how blessed a creature, if there be such, uh, blessed by its cleaving to your blessedness, blessed by your continual indwelling and your enlightenment. I can find no better name to call the heaven of heavens belonging to the Lord than your house, which contemplates your loveliness without the blemish of abandoning it for something else. It is the pure intelligence of holy spiritual beings, hence angels, uh, who are the citizens of your city uh, that is in heaven above this visible heaven, harmoniously at one upon a foundation of peace. So God's created this heaven of heavens. It's now his abode. It's like a creaturely heaven of heavens. It's unchanging only because God's there and it's participating in God. And this is where these minds are, these angelic beings that are contemplating God. So you almost hear the Neoplatonist language here of noose that's contemplating itself or mind contemplating itself. He's like, here it is. It's actually the heaven of heavens. And those minds are, you know, not necessarily forms or ideas, but they're the actual angelic beings grounded in this kind of creaturely wisdom or mind that's thinking about and contemplating God all the time in a state of sheer blessedness. And then that's what we through the soul will enter into. Um, that's that kind of rest that he's looking for. It might be worth to just noting um, just a, a few just Bible verses that help to kind of show the Augustine's not making this up. Just, just for yeah. example, Psalm 102, 25 through 27 says that, both God shaped and made the earth and the heavens, but they're going to be rolled up and disappear. Well, if heaven is where God is, and we know the angels are not going to disappear. Right. Heaven's not like, so it's obviously not the heavens that God made with his hands. That Psalm 102 talks about. It's the heaven of heavens that Psalm 115 says. Secondly, okay, this invisible stuff you're talking about. Well, Bible's pretty clear on this. Like Psalm 104.4, I believe, says that angels are wind and angels are fire. And uh, John Calvin will even interpret this as being that the angels are the causes of those effects. Huh. And this is like completely normal in, Christ in historical Christianity that wind and fire, like all the elements that you see, um, they have material causes, of course. But there's a sense in which the way in which God orders reality to hold together uh, has invisible causation as well. And those are what angels do. Hmm. So angels are like when we talk about causes, like what caused this and that? Yeah. Yeah. medieval persons and even john calvin and others was as angels now angels are causes but you got to think through this it's not in the way that it's not in material causation like that is preserved so scientific causation completely observed by christians but the point is that god behind all those things holds all things together by the power of his word hebrews 1 says for example how does that happen well it happens through his ministers for flames of fire and the winds and things like that um, in fact, uh, the Psalms say that God is not even a, a cow doesn't even give birth unless God's voice causes it. Yeah. And what's his voice? What's his word? The logos. The logos. So yeah. uh, anyways, my point is the same. That Augustine is actually very biblical, even though he's using the idiom of his day, which is unfamiliar to us. Yeah. It's not because he's being unbiblical. It's because uh, we're not biblical enough to understand what he's talking about. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh there's like, go on go sorry ahead. no you go for it i would say there's lots of really cool things in this uh there's there's two matters i know that you we all have different time limits but there's two things i'd love to touch 
One would be on Augustine's uh, view of people who are overconfident and identifying the mind of Moses. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to go there. Um, so I'll just I'll just give you a summary. But there's there's a really interesting thing here. Um, let me just find this where he, where he says it's in. I don't know what most. Sorry, what are you talking about? Twenty five thirty four. Well, uh, just above it, three at the top of that page, actually. Page three fifteen so, in the lobe. Yeah, three thirteen in the lobe, twenty five thirty three. I guess is where it would be. Oh, okay, I see. He says something so insightful that it took us uh, until about the year two thousand and fifteen to figure this out. <laughs> Meaning, uh, at the very top of the page, he says, "I cannot likewise see in Moses's mind that this is what he was thinking." His point is, I don't know what Moses is conscious thought was now in the 20th century virtually all biblical scholarship this is new and old at the same time said what was the conscious intent of the human author of the text and how do you know that which becomes hilarious when you read a letter like philemon which is like whatever 27 verses like how do you know what paul was intending like i barely even know what you're intending i mean i think that you probably think i'm a handsome dapper fellow but um (laughs) But that could be self-delusion, right? The point is, you can only know what Paul said by his words. Right. Uh, and this was a huge push in scholarship, which and is basically the psychological Freudian stuff, uh, where you, you thought you could get into the conscious. And you don't know. You have no idea. And no one really knows exactly, except for the Lord. But what we do know is what Moses said in his writings. Yeah. And from there, you can reflect on what is probable. And then sometimes certain if it's a very clear statement, like Jesus rose from the dead. Right. And then Augustine's getting towards that, I think, really wisely. Uh, he, It's almost like we should have been reading him instead of uh, 20th century German critics. Almost. <laughs> oh, geez. Gee willikers. Um, there are certain people who think, though, they can know exactly what Moses said, what his conscious thought was. And on the next page, he talks about them. Uh <laughs> Let me just read this. <laughs> this is actually, he's a little bit sarcastic. So at the bottom of page 313, which is the of 2534, the at the very bottom of the page, it says, they say this, next page, yeah. to me, <laughs> not because they are godlike and have seen in the heart of your servant Moses the things that they say, but because they are proud and do not know Moses' view and love their own instead, not because it is true, but because it is theirs. And he goes on to say that their presumption betrays arrogance not knowledge it's born of pride not vision what he's getting at is like some people um i'm going to summarize and you can be that you can look at it and give specifics it seems to me that he's saying something like some people are so confident in their own view and their their ability to identify moses's conscious as a t- conscience conscious intent that uh they're just not humble and they're doing something which is nearly impossible given like how tiny like the, the biography of Moses's life is like virtually nothing compared to how we know most people today. And we can barely understand the conscious intent of Abraham Lincoln. We right. have tons <laughs> of writings around him, right? Uh, you only know your wife's intent because you live with her and you you, you begin to get it. But sometimes you're like, ah, what are you talking about? Right. And it's like a great mystery. And that's why we need the spirit because we have the mind of Christ and Christ is the ultimate author anyways. But okay. Yeah. Give, give some specifics here because I know you're thinking about this as well. Well, I mean, you just see this stuff play out more and more in our day, right? Like when people get into these like crazy debates, like, I mean, we're seeing it right now going on on social media and various platforms where 
where people just have this, just like this abs. And, and again, we don't want to deny that you can have certain knowledge about truth. I mean, he's constantly referring to God as truth. Christ is truth. He's wrestling through how you can truly know things. And he's not, he's no, he's no relativist here. Um, but what he is doing is he's, he's approaching these things in a very kind of chastened and humble, humble way. Right. It's like, I can't dive into this guy's mind and psychologize him. I can only go with what he's given me. And certain, certain things are going to be clear, as you say, other things are not. And he's like, this is a bit more harder to wrestle through. And yet we approach these matters of like theological debate as like, there's zero sum games. And, um, there's no like people decry shade, you know, we want nuance and shades of meaning and things like that, that those are all relativistic terms. Um, but it's like, then we just apply everything with like this hammer that's black and white. And we, we not only are we hammering the text, but we're hammering anybody else who doesn't hold to exactly the same line of reasoning that we might, that they might hold to. Right. And it's, it's a matter of pride because I, I articulate this. I figured this out. This is my interpretation. And if you are, if you are in any way going to challenge that, uh, then the issue isn't really an issue of truth. It's an issue of my ego. Um, and the whole, the whole book of confessions about Augustine, like losing his ego in order to then come, come into a complete dependence on God for everything. And, um, you know, he says, oh, my God, this is on the bottom of 317, 2636. Oh, my God, you are sublimity to my humility and rest for my labor. You hear my confessions and can and forgive my sins. Since you direct me to love my neighbor as myself, I still cannot believe it of Moses, your most faithful servant, that you gave him a lesser gift than I would have wanted and chosen for myself if I had been born in the same era as he and you uh, had set me in the same place. So it was by the service of my heart and tongue that those writings were to be disseminated, which so later would do good to all the nations and which by their crowning authority would overcome the world of all false and proud teachings. And so he's basically like, he's, he's, he's striving for this kind of humility in light of the fact that God is like right. awesome and sublime and massive. And right and, above what you read, he talks about the immutable truth surpassing our minds. So it's not the right. case. It's immutable truth. The point is that because we're situated, weak, sinful, small, we can't possibly know everything that God has for us. Yeah. We can know true things, by the way. But we don't know it all. And so the point was to have humility to say, I only know what I've been graced to know. Yeah. But it's interesting in another work of his on uh, on doctrine, which is basically a guide to interpreting the Bible. He says, in terms of sacred eloquence, what could the divinity have bestowed more generously or fruitfully than the possibility of interpreting the same words in different ways? Uh, and then in our book uh, on uh, 3142, he says on page 331 of Loeb. So when one person says Moses meant what I mean, and another says by no means he meant what I mean, I think the more Christian response is, why not both instead? Huh. If both are true. Now, if both are true is the key, right? He's not a relativist. If right. both are true. But the, there, can, there can be multiple means because God's great. And if anyone sees in these words some third or fourth or any number of other true meanings, again, true meanings, yep. what is wrong with believing that he saw all these meanings? Since through him, the one God has adapted the sacred writings, and here's the key to it all, to the capacities of many people who would see things in them that were true and different together. Yeah. And man alive, his argument is, if you believe there is, uh, I'm going I'm to jump a little bit ahead of Augustine, but the summary is, if you believe there is only one single intent, and that's a conscious intent of the historical author, and you need the historical tools of Hebrew and history, blah, 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 you are an elitist. 
<laughs> takes the Bible out of the hands of people. Yeah. You're an elitist because God has so written the Bible that the farmer who's never read before can hear it read and totally understand it. And the scholar who spent his, his entire life studying the Bible can deepen his or her understanding of the word. God, uh, John Piper says it this way, uh, God is love. And so he's written things for all in a simple way, but God is truth. And so he's deep. Uh, I'm summarizing Piper. I can't remember the exact words, but God is truth. And therefore he has left mysteries for us to pursue that okay. are deeper and deeper. This is the basic part of Christianity that the German liberals co-opted and said, single intent, historical meaning. And the evangelicals drank the Kool-Aid yeah, and therefore denied the, the Bible for the average person. Because when he, here's what happens. They all try to say, well, you can do it yourself. All you have to do is dedicate 25 hours in the study to understanding the text. Right. And then the single mom says, what does the pastor say? Yeah. No, she can understand it. This is why when, when, a, when an 82-year-old grandma who prays every morning for people in the church reads Jeremiah and Jeremiah says, I have plans for you, plans for good, not for evil. And she thinks it's for me. She's right. Yeah. yeah. And if you say, no, no, the history, it's, it's for Israel, not for us. You're wrong, or at least you're both right. Is the better way to put it. Right. You're both right. Yeah, if you're stressing one meaning, against <laughs> if you're saying that exclusively to the other, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. that that's more August. You're both right in different right. ways. One is the original audience, and one is the extended meaning by means of typology and the character yeah. of God. Yeah, people think a lot. Evangelicals today think that that stress on the his, if we could put it this way, the first sense of the fourfold sense, which is like a historical grammatical interpretation. The, the, the assumption is that the Reformed tradition, they're the ones who captured uh, the literal reading of the text from those awful medievals or those awful patristics. And then uh, that's why we have that's why we have commentaries today. It's why we do exegesis. It's why we do expositional preaching. Um, but it's actually not true. Anabaptist propaganda. Well, you can see in the Reformed tradition that they use they they recognize multiple senses of scripture. You see in the medieval tradition and in Augustine, the stress on the historical, not to the neglect of the other three senses. And it is, as you say, it's a result of like so this kind of like the reformers scientific. Were, yeah, the reformers rejected the the the, the fourfold perfectly organized. Like, okay, yeah, but what they sure. didn't reject was the deeper spiritual meaning. I mean, yeah, I just I just finished Zanchi on spiritual marriage. It's this whole thing about the mystical meaning of scripture. I mean. Paul says the rock was Christ that followed right. Israel. Yeah. What? Or like Are Galatians 4, like these mountains. Allegorically speaking, he even yeah. says it's an allegory, yeah. but you don't have to use that word. You, it's just the rock was Christ. Jude 5, Jesus led them out of the wilderness. Uh, you can see, like, even in um, we, our church was just, uh, they're preaching in Hebrews right now, yeah. or in Hebrews 11. And uh, Hebrews just see, 10, like, what is the veil? It's the flesh of Christ. Yeah, and then he actually uses the word. Um, oh, it's not in this translation. I gotta get the ESV up here. But um, like, I, I I actually remember catching the word uh, figure in Hebrews eleven. I was like, whoa. Um, I don't know. I'm not gonna be able to find it in time because I'm gonna have to go in a couple minutes. But yeah, I mean, like figural reading. If you verse, want to call verse it that, nineteen. What is that? Verse nineteen. Yeah, verse nineteen. What does it say? I don't have it in front of me. Uh, uh, he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive yeah. him back. There you go, right? And it's yeah. that's all in the context of Abraham and Sarah, and uh, like 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 Paul in Romans four, right? Is the idea that like God can bring life right. from the dead. So like Sarah not being able to have a kid because her body is as good as dead, all of a sudden having a kid is actually interpreted in Romans four as a proof of the resurrection <laughs> that God brings back life from yeah. the dead. 
that's a figurative reading, right? And so, what is we, the land that they're looking for? It's not the not the land made by human hands, right? Yeah, yeah, the heavenly yeah. city, which Hebrews twelve identifies as the heaven of heavens, not Zion right. above, which not, Augustine's going to be addressing in in Book yeah. twelve. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, just to but, clarify right, though, you're, to the point, right? That you said yeah. it's like here's like higher German higher criticism, uh, the liberalism that comes out of that. Um, that get that that pushes us into this scientific approach to the yeah. text. We don't want to deny like the the historical no. article is so important and it frames. So it, it's the exclusive. You just read Augustine's... James Jordan and it's like yeah. you know he he gets allegorical left, right, and center. And, and, as a reminder, Augustine is wiser than us because he wouldn't reject critical historical approach. Yeah. He would say yes and yeah, meaning history is so vital to understand. If you if you if you can use history and grammar and all these like hundred percent use it. 100%. But don't say exclusively like, oh, but the stuff that Calvin believed uh, or the stuff that Zanchi believed or got like that's kind of pre-critical. They don't really understand history very well. No, it's and yeah. <laughs> because God has written the Bible. God's wiser than we are. And he adapted the sacred writings to the capacities of many capacities of many people who would see things in them that were true and different together. Capacities yeah. means the simplest person in the world and the most complex person in the world, different capacities. They can both understand the true meaning of the text yep. just at a different, in a different way. So yeah, of course this makes the Bible reading exciting because you can read it once when you're 19 and then again, when you're 29 and 39 and 49 and have a growing appreciation for the depth of meaning that you're uncovering. Never by the way, cause it's always true meanings, never in contradiction, right? but always Deeper yeah, the analogy of faith, right? The like, analogy of faith, yeah. Uh, to that whole idea. The, um, I think you, you should say something at the very end that's really wise and winsome uh, right. because we're a little bit polemical. But if not, we, <laughs> I'll just hit end. Just hit end.